to Next in Nonprofits. I'm Steve Boland, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Michelle Shoemate. She's a professor of communications at Northwestern and author of the very new book, Networks for Social Impact. Dr. Shoemate, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I got a, a little advanced copy of the book. It is now available for purchase, though, and I had a chance to go through some really interesting things that you and your co-author have put together. But before I start diving into all kinds of questions, could I just ask you, first of all, to introduce yourself in your field of study and then a little bit about why you decided to put some time into creating the book Networks for Social Impact? Yeah, so I'm a, a person who cares a lot about nonprofits. Um, when I try to explain why I do what I do, I always go back to actually my parents and how I grew up. Um, I grew up in a house with faith leaders as parents. And so our house was always that place you went if you needed a bill paid or if you needed a food or if you needed somebody mm -hmm. to talk to. Um, it served in our very rural town as kind of the domestic violence shelter, the place where you could get a lift somewhere. Um, and so it always became a part of me to support nonprofit organizations. And fast forward from there to when I was in graduate school over 20 years ago, and I was doing knowledge management work. And I was doing it on with a very large Fortune 100 company at the time, but I was volunteering in Hollywood, California, um, with organizations who were combating chronic homelessness. And I just had this uh, like light bulb moment that you know, we were dealing with a lot of different problems with knowledge management in this company. They had solved one of their most complicated problems eight different times because they didn't realize they'd solved it the other seven. <laughs> um, but the nonprofits were facing the exact same problem, right? They were finding that um, when I was working with an organization, they would be solving the same problem that the one down the street was solving. And I, that really just gave me a moment to realize that, you know, if as a sector, nonprofits could, could form a network and they could begin to find ways, um, especially small and medium-sized nonprofits, can begin to find ways to share information, to collaborate, to work together, they could make such a bigger social impact than they could by continuing to operate somewhat independently. Um, and so that's been really my, my work for the last 20 years is trying to understand how do you design and build networks of organizations so that they can learn more, so that they can, uh, organizations can be more sustainable, and ultimately so that we can begin to move the needle on some of the most pressing social issues of our time that really one organization alone can't make a significant dent in, but together organizations might be able to really reverse some of the th problems that we thought were intractable forever. And I think one of the challenges that I've heard over the decades of working in this sector myself, though, is funding community members, for example, coming up and acknowledging exactly what you're saying, that they get requests from uh, different organizations to uh, fund different projects that are trying to get to the same need. And they're asking, can you please you know, work together in such a way that we can understand how we're leveraging each other's services and goals towards a greater impact. But it's been a real challenge for a long time, despite the fact that it's seems like data collection systems are better and other information systems are better. Um, and as I was reading through your book, the, uh, the, the kind of dead ends that get mentioned periodically as you're mm -hmm. sorting through these things, um, one of the larger ones that I, I think is challenging and, and maybe more so in the 
um, smaller to mid-sized nonprofit area where I spend more time, uh, I, I do think is a uh, social or organizational cultural issue more than it is a, a, a network design concern. Um, do people come to the table thinking that they really want to be effective network players or are they thinking, and, and I guess I'm jumping ahead to this power dynamic conversation that you have later in the book, um, that they're thinking that, you know, everybody absolutely should be augmenting my impact. Please come to my table and tell me how you're going to help me get my work done. Yeah, I think that you're, you're tapping into something that's really important that in our research over the last, you know, dozen years or so, we've had a chance to take a look at uh, networks that are formed basically by funder mandate or funder coercion, maybe, mm -hmm. um, where it's not necessarily that they say you have to, but they say, you know, it would be a lot better for your grant application or the, the way that this looks, if you would. Um, and comparing those to what are, we would consider more voluntary networks is dramatic. Um, so I'll, I'll give you an example of this. So we were um, conducting research in Lusaka, Zambia. And in particular, we were looking at gender-based violence um, as an issue. And there were two collaboratives in Lusaka. One of them was funded by a large international development agency. Um, that international development agency chose the organizations who were part of that collaborative and chose what the goals were going to be and told them who was going to lead it. And then another uh, group of organizations working together um, had just come together because they realized they could not address all of the issues of the clients that they, were, that they were seeing. And when you looked at those two collaboratives, they were very, very different. The one that was donor mandated um, you had a lot of those attitudes, right? Well, like, I have to be here. Of course, we're going to do this. And what we saw in this example um, is what we see a lot of times where the organizations only did the things that the donor mandated them to do and nothing more. There was no kind of spark of let's figure out how to make this work for all of us. There was nothing. It was very compliance based. Mm. And in contrast, that grassroots collaborative, they didn't have they didn't have a lot of, of resources necessarily, but they found dozens of ways, creative ways to work together to enhance each other's works. Um, even in terms of like they had a, a system where if there was rolling power outages going through the city and it affected one organization, they had a way to contact them to say, hey, you can come over to our side of, of town. We have power and you can work in our uh, in our organizations. And like that was never come up in a donor funded man, um, mandated or a donor mandated collaboration. But it was something that they uniquely saw as an opportunity and it made a huge difference for the organizations who were involved. So there, there's a lot of examples where, that are like that. I think that the other thing that I would say about that is uh, a lot of folks assume when they um, form collaborations, especially donor mandated collaborations, that everybody's gonna come to the table with the best intentions. Um, and we found that's not always the case. Mm. Um, some organizations who are pulled there by a donor or by a funder um, really would prefer to not collaborate um, and they are, uh, they act as what we call the toxic node in the network because they are trying to sabotage the network actively. And we, we've had a couple of examples where we've worked with networks where we've identified someone who really was trying to sabotage the efforts of the network because they wanted the donor just to go back to funding them. You know, I think that there are many of us who have been in partnership processes, you know, some of it around measuring impact and, and coordination of services and whatnot, others of different types, where you sometimes feel that way, but it's awfully difficult to 
see it from the inside anyway, that, you know, th this is an intentional, we feel better served in an old model. We want this to fail. So an old model can uh, take its place. Um, that's honestly a little disheartening. Um, but <laughs> did you see that happen in multiple places? Or is this something that's more of an extreme example? Um, I've seen that a couple of times okay. um, when working with networks. Now, to be fair, I've worked with you know, hundreds of networks at this time. Um, but in those two places, we could identify it because once um, there was a transition in the person who was representative for the network and because somebody retired and left their mm -hmm. organizations and you could see the dramatic shift oh. that happened as a result in the end of it. You know, I think that there there's... Um, one of the, the tensions that all networks face, and that's even towards the extreme of toxic nodes, but all networks face is that, you know, when you have organizations who are coming to the table, they have to balance two hats, right? So the person who's sitting at the table, who's representing their organization, in part is thinking about, look at what we can do together, right? They wear their network hat. They're constantly thinking about scaling up the impact and moving the needle on the social issue and how they can find all these collaborations. But they also wear another hat, which is they are responsible for their organization. And sometimes it's challenging to wear both hats, but both have to be recognized. And this is one of those management tensions that exist in the networks, no matter what you do, is that you always have to balance those network priorities and the priorities of the organizations in the network. And that's a tension between those two things sometimes. Sometimes it means that you'd have to give up something for the network to support the organization. And sometimes it means you have to give up something for the organization to support the network. Um, I think that's an underlying dynamic in pretty much every uh, network that I've ever encountered. And later on in the book, I, I want to come back to some earlier sections, but later on, you do kind of talk about that power question of, you know, when is that sort of overtly expressed versus um, something that may need to be more negotiated? And um, that, as you talk about that, um, my organization might need this at this moment in order for the entire network to benefit more. It's good for all of us that I benefit in particular versus that decision of um, the network needs these things right now. And I have to, as an organizational leader, ask my organization to kind of take a little back seat um, in those conversations. But um, part of the what makes power in those circumstances is, you know, size and influence, but it's not the only things that you talk about. And um, do people actually, when they form those networks, kind of have that honest conversation about, we have disproportionate power in this conversation here, and that needs to be acknowledged? In some of the best networks, they do. Okay. Um, I would say that in working with networks, that's not usually the first conversation that we have. <laughs> sure. Um, but it's a conversation that's um, built after some trust. We talk about networks um, move at the speed of trust and having that honest conversation about power and about assets that each, or each organization brings to the table is one that requires a, a, a certain degree of trust among organizational leaders. Um, and I think that part of the challenge and part of the magic of having that conversation is making it asset-based rather than resource-based, particularly financial resource-based. Because, you know, and even in brokering networks right now between hospital systems and community-based organizations, you have to have some really honest conversations around, yes, the hospital system has more money. Yes, they have many more staff than the community-based organization, and they have more evaluation capacity, and they run on a totally different business model, mm -hmm. but they don't have the same level of community-based trust 
in right. marginalized and oppressed communities as these community-based organizations do, and you can't buy that. And so having that kind of asset-based conversation rather than these community-based organizations and all the problems they have um, makes a difference in changing the tenor and the power dynamics that happen uh, at these tables. Uh, so I think it's a conversation, maybe it's not the first one, but an asset-based conversation, um, as soon as some trust is built between organizations, can be critical to making sure that you're getting the most out of the network and that you're balancing some of these um, traditional challenges that network networks face. I read in the book somewhere, I can't remember exactly where about, you know, part of the, your, your goal here is to uh, um, unify some of the scholarship that's been happening in a lot of individual places, but also that the organizational silos themselves kind of stop network thinking and network impact piece. And as you think about that, that same question of that asset bringing to the table thing, it, it brings to mind some folks that I've been working with where um, some of the players are substantially smaller financially in staff terms. Um, but that trust element within specific communities, and I'm, I'm thinking right now about the African-American community in North Minneapolis, um, is not something that large organizations with however much money is going to be able to buy um, okay. into it. But um, it's a... Um, it's a it's a difficult conversation for a lot of those other large organizations to acknowledge and get into that that asset differential. Um, and I, I don't know how to begin that as you talk about your work in breaking those silos apart and getting those same people who, in theory, want the same impact, um, but maybe they don't often get to the same table to talk about it. Uh, how do you begin to create a network where none exists? Hmm. Um, in this particular um, in this particular power dynamic, especially when I'm dealing with community-based organizations who serve um, either communities of color or other marginalized communities, um, I start with data, um, mm -hmm. and I start with usually having a conversation with the, and it's usually a little shuttle diplomacy to be fair in the front oh, in the front okay. end, um, where I come with data and I say to a hospital system or I say to to a you know a, a police department or or the, to the city, these are your outcomes, right? And let's let's look at the outcomes for these different types of communities. And you notice that you, all of your efforts and all the money you've thrown at this particular problem have not changed these outcomes. Why do you think that is? And letting them ruminate on that for a while. And eventually the most honest of those conversations will come to, we don't have the trust of those communities. Hmm. And having them acknowledge that deficit themselves based upon the outcomes that they're producing then opens then opens up the uh, ability of the ability to really say, okay, who do you think has the assets that you're lacking? Or how may they be created anew if we really just don't know of partners that have those things? But that, again, probably means bringing in something different or new from what's happened so far. When you mm -hmm. mentioned that idea of this uh, shuttle diplomacy to begin that conversation, somebody needs to um, hire that shuttle diplomat then to say, you know, we're not seeing the kind of impact collaboratively that we think 
we could be seeing here, um, we need to begin this process. Does that organically uh, happen from a couple of well-functioning partners that could be part of a larger network? Or does that need to happen with a, a funder to step in from the outside? Or, or how do we begin to align networks that just haven't been functioning together so far, but logically probably would have more impact had they been doing that? So I think the first conversation to have anytime that you start a network is who's going to be the network instigator and what role are they going to play? And that's not a small conversation to have. Um, Network instigators can be funders. um, And there are great examples of funders being uh, network instigators that really give the network a lot of freedom to develop. Um, The Garfield Foundation certainly has done that with the REAMP network in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, headquartered in some ways in Minneapolis. Right. Um, So that was there's a good example there of a funder acting as a convener and setting up the network and bringing together the players, but not determining its trajectory and what it was going to focus on. But sometimes it's the small and medium sized organizations who decide to be the network instigator. Um, And they come and decide there's a problem here. And I think that I have the energy to put to this, that I want to try to solve it. Maybe as a person who does that convening work myself, or maybe as an opinion leader who can convince another organization to take on this convening work. Um, So one of my favorite, if we're talking about super duper small nonprofits, one of my favorite um, small network instigators um, is uh, Tracy Wharton, who is, uh, she runs the Littlest Tumor Foundation, which is an organization that is um, fighting neurofibromatosis, which is this rare childhood cancer. Um, her organization is her as the only full-time staff person. So very small nonprofit, right? But she got the idea that this was crazy for there to be so many funders, foundations who are working in this area of this very rare, primarily childhood cancer, who weren't collaborating with one another. And so she was the person who went and did this shovel diplomacy without Mm. hiring necessarily um, someone like me to come in and do it. Um, And so she went from organization to organization at their convenings, anytime there was a conference saying, hey, we really ought to do something and let's try to resolve this problem. And she became the convener for this organization or this network that has many foundations who are much bigger than her foundation in it. But it was her passion and her persistence and her just unwillingness to give up, even when she faced obstacles that allowed her to bring together these organizations and to have those honest conversations. Um, And so she's been lovely to watch as they've formed this NF collective uh, over the past years. And so it, it can be a funder. Um, who can then bring in somebody who provides technical assistance, certainly, but it doesn't have to be. For the small and medium-sized nonprofit, it just might be a person with a passion who thinks that they could do more together if they got these organizations at the same table. Yeah, although getting those people to the table around that common goal assumes the common goal. And I think that the chapter that where you mentioned the case study on REAMP, uh, the, the title of that is like, is social impact the goal? <laughs> and I mm-hmm. think that's a, uh, an, a an interesting way of like backing up just a sec going, we all think we're here for this goal. 
uh, is that why we're all here? Can we can we clarify that? Uh, and your case studies, and there are many of them throughout the book, but I, I found the reamp one, of course, is a Minnesotan, you know, interesting because I knew a little bit more about that from just living around here mm -hmm. versus uh, some of the other case studies where I'm, I'm learning for the first time about how those things were impacted. Um, but I, I think that that's a really important question that you asked pretty early on in the work of, of really identifying. Um, we all say that we're here for this impact, um, uh, but is it the social impact on a group of people or a mission or a whatever that we're really here for. And again, when is the time to surface that part of the conversation about how this network is pulling together? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's part of the thing that has to happen pretty early on. Once yeah. a convener, it starts to bring people together at a table. Um, they have they, the first question they're going to ask is, why am I coming to this meeting? <laughs> right? <laughs> and so you have to get to that question really, really early. Um, and sometimes it's a matter of getting to the table for an exploratory conversation where you realize, actually, no, social impact isn't the goal. What the goal really is, is to reduce all our expenses. Right. And so in that chapter, we talk about um, this collective of uh, private universities in Wisconsin who got together to share back office expenses. A similar collaborative existed here in Chicago called the Back Office Collaborative. And the idea really is just to try to share bookkeeping cost and purchasing power and insurance pooling and those kind of mundane things. But sometimes that's really the goal. That's where you want to start. Um, and it's not a bad way if you don't know each other yet to start because you can get to know each other that way. Um, but other times social impact really is the goal. Mm -hmm. um, and so surfacing that and talking about what do we mean by social impact? How would we know if we achieved it? Um, what, what kind of difference are we hoping to make here? Um, and what's the scope of this problem um, should determine a lot of things around who gets invited to the table? How do we wanna structure the work? How do we state what we're gonna do together? And my experiences from those first conversations to actually having a network that's there, like you can say that there's a there there, mm -hmm. we're talking six to eight months of conversations, some of it shovel diplomacy, some of it all together talking about what are we doing and how we're going to arrange a work. It's very much like beginning a new nonprofit organization in that sense. Um, it takes a good bit of thought and structuring to do right. It seems to me that one of the challenges of that, once you've had some of those initial conversations, though, is, you know, what you mentioned earlier, going back to the data. Um, and mm -hmm. many of these organizations may have disparate systems for collecting and measuring what they think of as impact in their in those areas. They may well agree with a few of those few months of meetings. Yeah, it makes sense that together we should be able to do this uh, with a, a bigger impact. But who gets access to my data? What, what of your data do I get access to? What's yours? What's mine? What's ours? How do we decide that? I, is that still a little bit of a protective space for um, some of the charities that you've seen is trying to establish networks for impact? Are they a little bit better at sharing than maybe we think that they would be? So I think it depends a little bit on how the network is structured in terms of its theory of change. Hmm. So networks who get together with a project-based theory of change or a policy-based theory of change often don't share that client-level social impact data. They're coming together and they're working on producing something jointly, and they might share some feasibility analysis, but they're not really sharing their data. 
Um, if you're talking about networks who are designed around a learning theory of change, which is the idea is that organizations benchmark against each other and they all improve their programs and services as a result of learning from one another and joint evaluation. Or if we begin to talk about things like systems alignment, um, things like um, the continuums of care to address mm -hmm. um, chronic homelessness or areas on aging um, to really try to coordinate senior services. Um, those types of theories of change require sharing data. And there are a number of conversations that have to happen in order to make that work. But yes, there are many organizations over and networks over time who've gotten there and who are using shared data to really move the needle. So for example, in the learning theory of change, the, the group I like to talk about the most is what are called the Chicago Benchmarking Collaborative here in Chicago. And they focus on early childhood and adult education. Their whole purpose for existing is learning. They share no clients, right? Um, so they, every, they've agreed on what each of their metrics mean, apples to apples, and they enter client level data into a shared system. It used to be efforts to outcomes. Now I think they're using a Salesforce based system, hmm. but then there are certain permissions, right? So it's not that everybody can see everybody's individual level data. Um, you can see your data. And you can run reports that allow you to compare your data with other organizations in the network, but their individual data is protected, right? So there's some degrees which you can benchmark, but some degrees which that, that data for privacy reasons and FERPA and all of that are protected. But then they, uh, the Chicago Benchmarking Collaborative is run by an organization called Christopher House, who's the kind of convener for it. The convener at Christopher House can see everybody's data and can run apples to apples comparison reports. What does that allow them to do? At the beginning of the year, she runs a comparative report and they all sit down and look at it and they say, oh, I'm really behind in um, when it comes to um, when it comes to third grade, uh, not third grade, when it comes to kindergarten readiness in the area of literacy because they're early childhood. Mm -hmm. And so they compare their scores to every other organization in the network so they can begin to say, are these are my scores behind or are we ahead? Who's winning? Who's not? When you have apples to apples data, you can really compare this. And then they do a bit joint goal setting where the organization says, I'm going to go after um, kindergarten literacy. And particularly, I'd like to figure out how to do this better. Here's what we're currently doing. And other people in the organization or in this network, this collaborative can say, here's what we've done that's really worked. And then they are responsible for putting in their improvement plan at least one idea that they got from somebody else in the network about what they're going to do. They implement that plan and then they run the data again at the end of the year to see if it made any difference. That kind of shared data system and learning is very different than the type of learning we do across organizations, usually because they've trusted each other enough with the data that they can actually say, oh, this is what we're doing well, this is who's really winning here, here's somebody that we can learn from. And I think without such a data system, without sharing that, um, it's kind of like everybody when they think about their, dri their driving, that something like 80% of people believe they're above average drivers. <laughs> yeah. I think the same thing happens in nonprofits, Agreed. right? We all yeah. think that our programs are great, but if you're sitting with a shared data system with like organizations, we get a really good idea about who's the greatest driver in the room. 
when it comes to that particular program or metric. So yeah, I think that type of data sharing can be really, really powerful. Um, it takes some thought. It takes a funder. In this case, it was the Chicago Community Trust who came in and supported developing the shared data system. But just life-changing um, because all of those organizations have gotten better at early childhood education in some of the toughest neighborhoods in Chicago and adult education outcomes too. Yeah, I, I, I'm pleased to hear about this as you talk about it now and in, in, in the, the book. I think it's a little, uh, the, the gut reaction that some of us in the sector may have hearing those stories is, you know, the, we can just absolutely see people in the room going, well, yeah, I mean, their metrics are a little bit better, but they don't have to deal with what I got to deal with. They've got the easy client. They have the easy network. I have these challenges. And therefore, there's always some kind of quantitative thing that they can suggest. And of course, some cases quite legitimately. Uh, around why it is a, a different set of challenges to achieve an impact with a population here, there, whatever. But presumably that's stuff one can weigh in a data system, one can work around and, and understand, but it just seems like that might take a while to get to. Uh, and that patience, uh, um, you, you talk a little bit, oh, you know, I want to get this maybe two questions at once here about the patience to make, to let those systems evolve, to get that information, to understand how that, you know, it may be a little disparate here or there, but we can understand weighing it to, to know that. Um, but I think you, you talk in the book too about um, a synchronicity across organizations that uh, sometimes some of those members are going to be asynchronous with what's moving on and they may need to kind of pause uh, and it mm -hmm. shouldn't impact the broader network. And I think that 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 can be seen as a moment in time for a lot of reasons. Some of it may be about the population they serve. Some of it may be about leadership transition or who knows what else, um, but sort of intentionally recognizing that in a broader structure uh, to not necessarily carry everything through the same time frame is another one of the challenges of uh, what you're identifying here as you try to de-silo this information. Um, I assume that comes up fairly often, but I don't know if you're going to be working together for a while. That asynchronicity may be a challenge almost all the time. Is that correct? Or does that happen less frequently? Uh, anytime that you have a network who's working together for any period of time, you know, once we start talking about a couple of years, you, you end up with asynchronicity um, between organizations and where the network moves. Um, I think in terms of data systems, uh, what can really help is to try to invest in the capacity of the one organization who's going to do the comparative evaluation. And so this is a cost savings often for small and medium-sized nonprofits because they can invest in one data, um, data analyst who can do things like control for free and reduced lunch, control for differences in ethnicity and disaggregate the data. So we're really talking apples to apples when we compare and we get rid of some of those, my clients are harder issues. Mm -hmm. um, but when it comes to asynchronicity over time, sometimes that means that organizations have to step out of the network. Right. Um, that, that certainly was true in the Westside Infant and Family Network. Um, and this is a, a network that's really des um, designed around addressing trauma that's happening in families with young children. So the way that um, clients come into this network most often is they get keep, the, the kids keep getting kicked out of preschool. And when you have kids who are getting kicked out of preschool after preschool, the problem is often not the child. The problem is the environment that they're in is causing trauma that is getting expressed in some unproductive ways. Um, so they're an organization, their kind of theory of change is really based around systems alignment. So they have, you can go to um, 
any of the organizations in the network and you can get a, a home-based um, visitation um, that would develop a goal, set a plan and help do navigation to the right services and things that can help you achieve the goals that you set out in those plans. That's kind of the model. Um, when they first got together, um, they hadn't completely figured out that model. Um, and they eventually figured out that it really was a home-based model that they were after. Um, and so that was the only thing that they were going to apply for joint funding for was this kind of home-based case management model. And a couple of organizations decided no and cycled off. And then um, later, as the network progressed in its, its kind of data and evaluation capacity, they added a case management system. And the network became kind of the second supervisor for all those home-based um, community health workers who were doing that home-based school setting a visitation model in all of these other organizations. And then again, we had a capacity kind of, uh, of gain made at the network level. And again, there was a couple of organizations in that network who said, we cannot keep up with where you're at. We have to take a step back out of this network. It's no longer going to work for us. And they brought in some new organizations mm -hmm. who could have that capacity. For that network, they didn't feel like they could slow down the progress of what they were doing because their need was so great that they had to continue to evolve and get better. But other times networks take a pause and figure out how to build the capacity of organizations so that they can catch up um, and be a part of the network. And that's a little bit of a, a what we call a management tension, a network management tension in the book. Um, you have to make progress on the social issues because that's why you're together as a network. Mm -hmm. But sometimes if you do that and you consider that as the only goal, you're going to leave organizations behind. But at the same time, you can slow down to meet organizations' needs. But if that's all you do, you won't make progress. So it's a tension between those two, the polar opposites that you have to manage as a network leader. Um, and there's never a time where you don't feel that tension. It seems like there's that opportunity to recognize the asynchronicity as a pause rather than a um, an end, but that sometimes mm -hmm. it's an end. Uh, I, right. I guess that that could be okay. Uh, and, you know, we may not always know that right away. You may think that you've started a pause and then you find out six months later, no, that really, as it turns out, was an end, but we didn't mm -hmm. fully embrace all of that at that time. And that's just the nature of our work, which I think we're running a little low on time. So I have one more thing I want to ask you about before we have to get ready to wrap up, which is um, uh, towards the end of the book, as you focus a little bit on this idea of uh, agility adaptability, that um, any kind of impact that we're looking to have as groups over time is going to take time. Um, and I, I've, I've run into this a, a few times, especially kind of post-American rescue plan and, and, and uh, COVID relief and whatnot, where a fairly large sum of resource compared to the past gets dumped on a problem like, oh my gosh, uh, here, here's a bunch of money. And you're like, we, we still need the time part. <laughs> just, just the money doesn't actually do it. We need to, and, and people look at like, but you just had a whole bunch of money. Uh, why isn't this you know, making a huge impact right away? Um, and I think there's that getting systems, getting networks, all of that, but there's that agility of now it's going to change again uh, from what we did and what we uh, did. And, and I, I find that challenging keeping networks together in the past, but boy, it feels like in the last couple of years in particular, that's even more so. Um, how do you help people go in with the idea of adaptability and agility to those changing conditions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that you've hit the nail on the head and certainly what I'm experiencing as I, I work with networks of networks, 
um, and they're trying to provide technical assistance to their networks, they're saying the same thing, that this has been, the last two years have been particularly difficult to keep networks together. Um, and we've, we've spent a lot of time with networks looking at them over time um, and found that to be true. Um, a couple of things that, we, that, that I would point out that might be helpful. One is just to keep everybody realistic. Um, so there is actually now a good body of research coming out of public, the public administration area internationally now um, that says we're looking at three to five years before you begin to see the needle move. Right? So if you're looking for a win in the first six months of starting this network, that's an unrealistic expectation. So one of the things I try to do early on when, whenever I'm working with a new network is just let's be realistic about how long this is going to take. If we're going to talk about a project based network, it might be shorter. But if we're talking about networks that are really being founded to not come up with a new development or things, um, but are actually going to focus on a service or a program or systems alignment or learning three to five years minimum before we're going to see traction. And then the second piece that I think is really just essential for a, a, a really agility and adaptability, um, we found in a study that we did of 26 education networks across the country. And the networks who were able to, to stay together when they hit what we call crossroads moment, which isn't like the minor like network turnover changes, but like the big funding shifts, um, new power players in the community kind of changes that we, we've all experienced in the last two years. Uh, we found that the, the number one thing that seems to matter is distributing leadership. Hmm. That when leadership let rest in one single organization in the network, because, well, they're the backbone organization or they're the anchor organization, so it's their job, right? And we put all of the visioning and mission into that organization, and they're the one who's facilitating, and they're the ones who are driving the data analysis. And it really, it's so much is con really con concentrated in that one organization. Those major changes end up with networks falling apart. But when you can have a network where that leadership is distributed, where it's not all being held in one organization, but it's being shared across a number of organizations, then we can have more adaptability in those moments of change, especially mm -hmm. if you've had leadership turnover or you begin to have significant funding changes. And then networks are more set up to being able to handle those changes over time. So much more to say about that, but I'm afraid we're just about out of time. So I, I think as I wrap up and just ask you your final thought on um, something I was told in project management decades ago when I kind of started doing that work was you can, you can have it good, you can have it fast, you can have it cheap, pick two. Um, uh -huh. And uh, I think that that idea of flexibility over time when probably we're not going to see the level of financial investment that we want in the networks themselves to build resources and whatnot, that that adapting to that idea of we have to give this time is more like in order for it to be any good at all, um, is probably, you know, what I'm hearing uh, out of this more. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts on that before we have to wrap up? I think that that's exactly right, that in order to move the needle on social issues, right, if we're really, if social impact is actually the goal, then it's going to take time. Um, and that means that if it's not going to be fast, we need to make sure that it's good and that it's thoughtful and it's well-designed. Um, because otherwise, it's an amazing investment of resources and time and it wouldn't be worth it, right? So I, I think slowing this down a little bit and not trying to get to the quick wins 
um, ends up being a piece of advice that tends to, to pan out in most of the networks that we work with. Outstanding thoughts. And I really appreciate getting a chance to, to see the book. And um, we'll have links in the show notes for people to be able to take a look at getting their own copy. Uh, Dr. Michelle Shumate is a uh, professor of communications at Northwestern and the author of the new book, Networks for Social Impact. Dr. Shumate, thank you again so much for your time today. That's my, my pleasure. Thank you. 